This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. As always, I'm so excited to bring you today's guest. Today's guest is a friend of mine. Her name is Jen, and she has a beautiful story and a beautiful business, which we'll get to talk about in a bit. But first of all, as always, I just want to start with the story. So welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much, Annie, for having me. It's my pleasure to lend my voice. Um, So I come from three generations of intergenerational trauma and addiction and mental health issues. And so I, for a long time, um, adversity hit me at a very young age. There was a lot of chaos in our family system. Um, I had a baby sister who died, an emotionally absent mother, a father who was working, and an older brother. And my older brother fell uh, prey to heroin addiction by the time I was 12, and he was six years older than me. He was well into um, heroin, um, IV heroin use. And so I didn't know what normal was because that was my normal. And so as a teenager, due to my formative years, I found drugs. And what I was looking for was a way to feel better. And I didn't recognize there was any other healthier ways to feel better because nothing else was introduced to me. And so by the time I was 18, I recognized that I had a problem. I didn't use like everybody else. So alcohol never became part of my story until much later in life into my 40s because it was so much more socially acceptable to have a drink rather than, you know, roll a joint or something like that at the table. So um, by my time I was 40s, I found alcohol. I, I just back up once. I went to treatment in 1993, and that was my first introduction to that maybe there was something abnormal about how I was using substances to sort of just check out and not, and not lean into what I needed to feel and process because I didn't have those tools back then. But so I would just do that bypass of, okay, I need to feel better. So what makes me feel better? And so that's why I went to, um, I turned to drugs. So by 93, I married, I have a very young family and um, my husband said, you need to get it together. And I said, okay. So my children were my non-negotiable and I needed to clean that up. So I felt that they deserved better. And um, I came from a chaotic system. So I knew the value of better parenting. It's not that my parents weren't good parents. They did the best they could, but it was very dysfunctional, very chaotic. And And so so what do you mean by a chaotic system? That sounds like a very mental health-esque word that yeah chaotic was um you know there was always a crisis there was ambulance at our doors my mom was strung out on valium there was um please come into our door my brother was putting his hands through windows to get pain medication. So I just sort of as a little girl, because I was six years younger than my brother, just watched from the sidelines of all of this. And I was just this good, quiet little girl who sort of got lost in the chaos of this family system. And so everybody was doing the best they could. And when you say family system, you just mean a family, right? Yeah, like mom, dad. Nothing specific. Okay. Sorry. Um, That's okay. I know you're in the industry, so I just want to clarify who are not familiar with the lingo. Well, um, you know, like we, we're basically, we're products of our environment. So social aspect has a really big part of whether we fall vulnerable, I think, to substance use disorder. It's not the only part, as you know, because you studied uh, quite well the science behind it and everybody is vulnerable and I get, I get that. And I think more so, some are more so than others. Um, 
So I went to treatment in 93. I was young in my 30s at the time and I had a and young- what sort of, pre what precipitated that? Like what, what was going I, on in your life when you went to treatment? It was interesting. It was just after my brother died. So I had a young daughter. She was my third child. And um, she was about 18 months at the time, between 18, yeah, 18 months. And I started to have flashbacks of trauma just after my brother died. And that just sort of, I just started, my youth started to escalate. And so I wasn't really coping well. And, and so- did your brother died from drugs? Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. so he died overseas. And so he had a complicated, a really complicated history. Um, so drug abuse was definitely part of it, but he was also wanted internationally by Interpol. It was like, I won't go into the details about that, but it was very unconventional. So anyway, so that's what happened. And so after that, and it was the first time in my life, I never recognized how scared I was of my brother until he was dead. And so a lot of feelings came up for me and that's when my youth started to escalate and that's when I um, really was given an ultimatum by my husband. And were you, was it alcohol or was it not alcohol? No, I was smoking basically hash at the time. Um, I had experimented with a lot of drugs throughout my adolescence, but I settled into hash as my drug of choice. And so it was something that worked for me until it no longer worked for me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that at that point, either I was going to escalate or I needed to make alternate decisions, right, about how I was going to navigate through my life. And so I did. And, you know, I went to a traditional in re women's residential program outpatient. I went daily because I didn't want to leave my children from nine to five. And I did a 28 day program. And it was my first introduction to the recovery world. You could have thought they had presented Chinese or Greek to me as a language because I couldn't understand it. I couldn't get my head around it. I was presented the big book with 12 step principles. And you know what? It kept me clean, but I wasn't in the program. So for six years, I absolutely touched nothing. I slept with this big book beside my bed. Don't ask me why, but I did. It was sort of close to me. I was not engaged in the recovery community at all. And then eventually I thought, okay, after six years, I'm going to be a social drinker. So that was good. I'm now in my 40s and, you know, I have a young family, everybody drinks. And within two years, it really hit me hard because really what had happened was I was abstinent, but I hadn't really recovered. I hadn't really done the work that was necessary to sort of process what was going on for me emotionally. And so therefore, it didn't take me long before alcohol replaced my other drugs. So I um, ended up in 2003, so 10 years later, I ended up going to a residential program and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this properly now. I'm going to get clean. I'm really going to clean everything up and I'm going to clean up the relationships. I'm going to clean up my history and very honest with my family, my young adult, my young children at that time, they were not so young, but they, they were definitely young children. So my children at that time were ranging from about six to 15. So very prominent, very big trauma for them, having mom go away, even though they had access to me and I was in the city. Um, and I was introduced again to the 12-step program. So nothing wrong with 12-step. I'm not anti-12-step. Step, it got me clean. And I went to meetings twice a week afterwards. I went to aftercare. But it didn't take me all the way. It really didn't take me. So I was a seeker. I'm an intellect. I'm curious. And so I found, and the spiritual side of things was really good for me. It worked. It really, really worked for me because it was there. They, it presented a calm for me that I truly needed in my life. 
but there was a rigidity in the program that I experienced, and not everybody does, I get that, um, that really didn't really, that I felt further stigmatizing. So for example, as a trauma victim, I was told like, if you're relapsing, you're not doing it right. You need to sort of, you know, fit into the box. And I was having trouble with that because I already didn't have, I didn't have a great opinion of who I was. I already had a lot of shame around my own, my history. And so someone telling me that I'm a piece of shit or whatever they, the language they used at the time was really further stigmatizing me and hurting me. So eventually after, um, six years working the program diligently, I started to look and become um, a curator of other recovery models. So Recovery 2.0, Tommy Rosen comes to mind and it all comes, you know, my daily sadhana practice and my Kundalini yoga, which really does work for me. And and in no time at all, um, I ended up falling into this, um, into this business. And I'll tell you that in a second. But your program has, even though I never got sober by your program, your program has worked wonders for myself and my clients and in a way that I never thought imaginable. So as a curator, I was curious about other recovery models. So hip sobriety, recovery 2.0, any face, this naked mind. And what happened for me was I was clean, but I was still socializing with people who drank a lot of alcohol because that was our peer group. Not all our friends were, you know, drink a lot of alcohol in an unmanageable way, but it was alcohol was part of the culture. And so what happened for me was I would attend, I would have a good time, I'd be pleasant, everybody's drinking moderately or some more so than others, but I was feeling like my glass is half empty, like what's wrong with me, there's something wrong with me, I'm the one who can't do this. So I was looking at it from more of a punitive position as I don't get to do this rather than my God, you're sober and you don't need this. And that's where your program really worked for me because I, even though I was sober when I found your program, I managed to debunk the myths about the ro romanticizing alcohol and really what it does for you rather than, and really found the gift in being proud and sober and, you know, and really celebrating sobriety rather than feeling like it was a, you know, a sentence, a life sentence, a punitive life sentence, right? And that's how I was viewing it. Um, only till I guess in the last few years, um, I started thriving from the time I started to look at other recovery practices and incorporate holistic recovery. So I use, I throw everything at it. I don't care how someone gets well, as long as they do, that's my philosophy. So if it's tapping and I started as a somatic therapist and I'm a trained, a certified addiction counselor and a recovery coach. And I believe that there's many pathways to wellness, emotional wellness. And so this was another modality. And today, I, this is one of the first things I do is I take my clients through your program, um, through your teachings around debunking the myth around alcohol when they still glamorize alcohol and they've got a casualty list, like almost a map of, of uh, evidence that alcohol really doesn't have a, a, prey in their, a part in their life. Because by the time people come to me, their life is really in ruins in terms of their substance use disorder. And there's usually a lot of evidence, either there's an employer issue or there's a health issue or a relationship issue. There's some sort of evidence that they really need to tone it down. And I know that you treat people who don't come that far sometimes and they're lucky enough to find spontaneous sobriety, which is absolutely perfect. But I, there's also these people who still, after much evidence, 
can't get their head around that this is not good for them. And so one of the things they do is try to take them through like what they think alcohol is going to do for them and what really happens. And then we look at the dissonance between the two, which is exactly your methodology. So that's what I do in my professional life. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful. That's so cool. Um, wow. So, and I, I feel like I have lots of questions, but just, just sort of backing up to when you had, you know, the kids at home and you went into the treatment center, what, what got you to do that? Like what, what was kind of your line in the sand that you're like, okay, this has to change. My, what, what got me there was the wrong reasons. What kept me there was the right reasons. So what got me there, my children were non-negotiable for me. They were the most, absolutely most important things in my life. Still get emotional even thinking about that. And now those little people are 26, 29, and 32, and everybody's thriving. Our family's thriving. We've, we're a family, a recovery family. We've healed together. And it's been an imperfect process, absolutely. But we've come through it together. And we're really tight as a family. And I've now been married 38 years. I got married as a kid. Like I was a tiny, I was 22 years old when I got married. And so our relationship has evolved over time. But what kept me in recovery was my pain was so searing. It was unmanageable. My pain, my emotional pain and has really been great. And so my willingness to search and see was proportionate to the, my pain. And so that's what really kept me there. And so I feel that life is going to keep dishing you life, which is part of life, but I have the skills to handle it now, no matter what. And so if you were, you know, some people might be listening to this that don't even really understand the term recovery, you know, recovery might mean from a bike wreck or, you know, car crash. Um, but you had talked about earlier something where you had gotten sober, but you hadn't actually embraced recovery. Can you kind of delineate that a bit and, and give some color? Yeah, absolutely. So I was abstinent, but I wasn't thriving. So to me, recovery is holistic recovery, thriving in every aspect of your life. In fact, I say on my part of my tagline is in recovery from life. I believe we're all recovering from something, whether it's trauma, whether it's shame, whether it's that little incident that really, you know, got into our psyche and makes us who we are today. But for me, recovery is so I've recovered in my relationships. I've recovered in my emotional regulation. I have the ability to feel so I can heal. Um, I have recovered from substance use. I don't use substances to make me feel better anymore. I've designed a life that makes me really thrive. So my personal and my professional mission are aligned in a way that is part of my integrity and that feels good. So therefore I don't need to do anything. Drop the good girl people please enroll, that's for sure. <laughs> so I'm sort of like a little bit of a teenager now actually coming out with Second Life, but it's all working for me, but it's taken some time, absolutely. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I can see that in you, you know, mm -hmm. just youth and joy and like there's, that's really cool, that's amazing. So if somebody was saying, okay, well me too, you know, I've, I've stopped, but I'm miserable where would you recommend they begin? Well, I believe all behavior has purpose. So I would look at what's going on in their life that's keeping them where they're in a cycle that really doesn't feel good for them. And then we would start to unpack what is going on for them. And then let's look at what we need to redesign. Because 
I think people get into roles, we become adaptive at a very young age. And so once we're adaptive, we're not really showing up in our authentic self or truth. And so we do what people think or expect of us to thinking that will make us happy. And ultimately it takes us, it's a good coping mechanism when we're young, but it won't take us all the way. And that's truly what I feel has happened for me. I had like coping mechanisms that I thought if I was just this good girl, because I had a lot of shame and history that people would like me. And eventually people did like me, but I hated myself. So that wasn't making me happy. Right? So, right, right. so, you know, it's really claiming back yourself in a way that's really truly meaningful to you. Oh, that's really cool. I like that. And I think it's so true. I mean, we, we do, we adapt to everything we adapt. And, you know, sometimes those adaptations serve us, but a lot of times um, they don't serve us, you know, mm-hmm. and we've, we've kind of sacrificed along the way, little bits of ourselves. I remember, I was such kind of a, always the one inviting everybody over and having these big, huge get togethers at our house. And I'm like, that's just who I am. Like, I'm really, you know, I'm the social person, I'm the party person, whatever. It's always at our house in the hub. Um, And then a few years after I stopped drinking, I was like, I don't know. I think now a few days ago, we had some friends call last minute and said they might come over for dinner. And we had just planned to like, just chill as a family and watch a movie and I was like oh no I hope they don't come over <laughs> and I'm like how did I become such a hermit but I think it's really more authentic to me you know and it makes me happier so discovering that and then reconciling the things that you think the world wants or you think that everybody wants like oh this bubbly outgoing person well I'd probably just rather curl up with a book like making peace with that aspect of ourselves. And that's a huge part of it because I think you probably know some of your clients or people have gone through your program, myself included, who identified as a party girl. That's who you think you are, right? Because that's what you used to do, right? And then at the end of the day, it was just a role that you played at some point in your life. It's not because that's who you really were. And so when you, the reconcile is really the hard part, right? Because it's like, it's, you're playing with your psyche. Who am I if I'm not this person then, right? So, yes. <laughs> and then that space that creates, because you're like, okay, well, I know I don't want to be doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it creates this space and it's almost like a vacuum and a vacuum like needs to be filled. And there's ways you can fill that vacuum with really good, positive things and, you know, really digging into all these different things or the vacuum can just be cluttered up with, all sorts of other stuff. I mean, I've heard of all sorts of things from people, you know, getting, I mean, even as simple as just like a Netflix addiction that's <laughs> gone rampant, right? Because all of a sudden you have this space in the evening, not saying that that's bad, especially initially, but I think filling up that space and then looking at it and then relooking at it, but it's, it's always a journey. I have a theory, good, better, best. Yes, you're right. So Netflix is like a mind bypass right but at the same time one has to do what they have to do to get out of the gate and then move right. forward right <laughs> right it's like be real gentle with yourself in the beginning i mean i always tell people i'm like the first the first bit like just lay on the couch with netflix and bonbons like literally just be so gentle with yourself. <laughs> just a massive thing and if you can get some time under your belt if you can get out of the gate like you say um it's going to be incredible and then it's much easier to tackle those little things later you know Absolutely. Very cool. Well, that's awesome. So, um, Jean, what 
you know, we talked about you being like a somatic therapist, an addiction counselor, a recovery coach, all of these things. Um, but I know you also have a really cool business that uh, is, I refer people to when they are looking for, for treatment. So can you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. So my business is called The Recovery Concierge and it's trademarked. And um, it's basically, I innovated out of what didn't work for myself and my family is, is uh, plugs the gaps in recovery services. So it's really a recovery management agency and it has four core services. One is first response. So a lot of time people do not know how to get started on their path to, um, to uh, therapy or treatment. So it navigates an ethical navigation placement. So it's not, I'm, I'm not getting any kickbacks, not getting any commissions. It's really a nuanced, correct fit for whatever that client's presenting. It's a family-centered, client-centered approach, compassionate care. It's really meeting the client wherever they are at. It's not, and I believe in all pathways to recovery. So it's just getting them on the path and bringing them through. And so my role is to case manage, liaison with clinical teams, families, um, whoever's part of that wellness component for that client. So that's one. And then we have continuing care, which is a transition service. So if someone does go to treatment and then we're then building the wellness, um, the care team on the ground where that person is and where, you know, so that they can transition from a full-time residential into that next stage of their recovery program or emotional wellness or whatever you want to call it. And then the third one is um, I have an alcohol monitoring program. So basically there are some people who just need some accountability. It's typically in custody supports. Um, we have it with employment issues where um, they need a third party to be monitoring and know that, that person's not engaging so that their child or their employment is not in jeopardy. But not only do we provide the monitoring, we provide the mentoring to really try to pull them through the continuum to really change their life as well. And then I actually do some coaching for people who are just sort of stuck and they want to get that real upgrade in their life and redesign their life in a way that's more meaningful for them. So, such a cool thing. And you can tell you're very passionate about it, which is amazing. It's exciting. It is because it's, um, it's something that's actually worked. It's had great success and we see some good outcomes. Yeah. I get to see lives transformed. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. Thank so you. I have um, the question that I always ask sort of um, last question, but if you were going to go back to the Jean that was you know, in that so much pain that she was, you know, risking or not even risking, but sacrificing her time with her children to be in treatment for that time, understanding the pain that they would have from her being in treatment. Um, what would you tell her about what life, what the outcomes of that decision were, what life is like now? The gifts of sobriety are beyond what anybody could have ever imagined. You get to redesign your life in a way that is exactly almost like a dreamlike state. So just go for it. You're worth it. Your family's worth it. And it's the ultimate upgrade. In Absolutely. Yeah, I can relate to that for sure. I feel like sometimes it takes, takes a while, you know, cause you, you do, you stop you like drinking in my, my case. But then it was a while before I started feeling good enough to start to look at getting off antidepressants. And then when I got off the antidepressants, I really had to look at my thinking, which was causing all the anxiety in the first place. And then, you know, further and further down the track. And then ultimately you reach this point where you're just like, wow, it is almost like a dream-like state. You are living this life that you just kind of 
it exists for everybody. It, and, it, and it is very youthful too, because it's going back and seeing, you see children who are just blissed out all the time, except when they have a temper tantrum and then they completely go through all of these emotions, but then they're 15 minutes later, perfectly back on track, right? And um, you can see that I have a one-year-old and I mean, she lives in a state of just constant contentment unless something has happened where she's fallen off a chair or whatever the case is at the moment, right? And, you know, just starting to see that for yourself is just phenomenal. And it could never happen because I think that actually taking the substance out of your life then ignites doing the growing up that we never did in the first place because we were <laughs> numbing ourselves or crutching or, you know, relying on something that was so unhelpful. Well, we all think the solution for all of us is out there and it's an inside out job, as you know, but if people could, and I always say this, if we could all see ourselves truly for who we really are and how others see us, we'd never play so small. It's just that we get yeah. into the noise around who we think we are or whatever. And so we shrink down. And so, yeah, we need to see ourselves for who, how others see us and know that we have all the answers are, are within. Yeah, it's beautiful beautiful that's awesome well it's been such a pleasure it's so nice to get to know you a bit better hear your story and Likewise. i just really appreciate it thank you very much andy i appreciate you and the opportunity to serve thank you thank you this has been annie grace with this naked mind podcast thank you so much for listening you can learn more at thisnakedmind.com and please remember to rate review and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word